just so deeply ingrained into like who I am as not even just as a poet but as a person. I think that if if we didn't have Dickinson, I I might not be here right now. What what doing what I'm doing? I might not I might not have ever written a decent poem. You know, yeah, yeah. I think there there are so many of her words or her phrases or her images that just that just stay with me and and find their ways in small sometimes unnoticed ways into my into my own beliefs and into my own poems. What makes life worth living? Loved ones, yes. Meaningful labor, yeah. Beautiful things. That might be number three on my list, beautiful things. If you take any of those three off of the list, life gets dramatically, dramatically less worth living. Mm-hmm. If you eradicate any of those three from existence. So Dickinson devoted an entire life to making my life more worth living. I would be immensely sadder, immensely sadder if this book didn't exist. And it almost didn't. These poems were not hidden really, but ignored, tucked away. So this book, more than most books, we can feel immensely lucky to have. We feel more lucky to have this book than most other books. And we are under an even greater obligation to not take this book for granted. Hello, everyone. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Sam about the poetry of Emily Dickinson. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you pay more attention to compression in your poetry. The quote of the day is a little bit of a cheat this time since it is just going to be a poem by Emily Dickinson. I wanted to choose this as the quote of the day because it will relate to the writing prompt later, and also I think teaches us a lot about what poetry uniquely does compared to other genres. Uh, This poem is number 466. The first line is, I dwell in possibility. I dwell in possibility, a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors of chambers as the cedars, impregnable of eye, and for an everlasting roof, the gambrels of the sky, of visitors the fairest, for occupation this, the spreading wide my narrow hands to gather paradise. It's really the beginning and end of this poem that I wanted to highlight. Emily Dickinson defines poetry in opposition to prose and calls poetry possibility and says that it has more windows, more doors than prose. She ends this poem by saying, the occupation of poetry is the spreading wide of narrow hands to gather paradise. It's a wonderful physical image of what poetry can do. Many, many poems are very narrow, very small, very compact, very slight, very slight seeming, but what do they end up holding inside of them? Paradise itself, right? Infinite possibility, she says as this poem begins. Poetry is the genre that uses less to say more, that proves that in only a few words you can say more or imply more or evoke more than the the longest novel. And for more about Emily Dickinson and how her poems seem to gather paradise. Let's go into that discussion between me and Sam. Hi, Sam. Hello. You can hear me? Yes. Oh, very good. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, I sent you that email. I don't have tons of well, any like mandatory things that I'm going to force us to talk about. We can take this conversation wherever you want. I do find her quite a difficult poet to talk about. And that could be for several reasons. It could be that she is so, on the surface, she is so unimitatable. She's, she created such a distinct style. And it's a style that you wouldn't be wrong to say 
she kind of closed the door to, you know what I mean? She invents a style, she invents this mansion, and then she leaves it, you know, with her last poem, says goodbye, locks the door, walk away. And we can't really get, we don't, we don't really have, it's not our mansion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not our, it's not our voice. We can't really ape Emily Dickinson. We would be wrong to. So that's one reason why I find her a little bit difficult to talk about. Another is because there's so many poems. That's another mm-hmm. reason I find it hard to talk about her poems. There's so many of them. Also, I'm mean, now just rambling, sorry. Also, some of the poems are so good and the reasons for their goodness are obvious and don't need commentary. Mm-hmm. So commentary feels superfluous. Other Others seem so cryptic and baffling that any commentary seems pointless. You know, so it's like all of these reasons, like, what am I going to say about Dickinson? I don't know. But like, I know that you have a lot to say, and I'd rather hear what you have to say than go in any direction that I'm about to now suggest. I'll just put some stuff on the table. I said, yeah, even though she kind of invents a style that we can't really imitate, we still absolutely can learn a lot about how to write poetry from her. So Mm -hmm. a little list here. She can teach us a lot about diction and sonic texture, just word choice. Mm -hmm. uh, Color. (laughs) <laughs> Her poems are some of the most colorful. I mean that literally. Uh, she's very good at oxymorons or very surprising adjective noun pairs. So we could talk about that. She's very good at combining the big and the small. And she's very good at combining darkness and light. And I mean that literally, but also metaphorically. She has some of the most depressive and depressing poems. Mm-hmm. But also some of the brightest um, and some of the most unabashedly cheerful poems it's quite a spectrum so that's kind of like when i ask myself what i in a style i write in a style that's quite different from hers what i can learn from her that's a kind of initial list that i come up with and then i also said that i'd love to spend some time with some less famous dickens poems so so here's a hard question this might be the hardest question i ask you what is your favorite poem in this whole book oh no i knew you were going to say that and Um, why yeah uh, it's an it's an impossible question. I think that the reason I love Emily Dickinson so much is because her her poems just like stick in my brain. And every time I read her, it's like a different poem that sticks and it like it just works its way into my thoughts and ideas and sometimes even into my own poetry. The one that I can't get out of my head right now after reading through this one is it's, I mean most of them are short, but it's such a short one. Um it's 1755. Um I think on page 710. Do you want me to read it? Yes, please. To make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee, one clover and a bee, and reverie. And reverie alone will do if bees are few. It's so good. <laughs> this so is good. this is in my top five. I mean, definitely in my top 10, maybe my top three. It's so good. And you will now tell everyone listening why this is so good. Because it is. Because, because she she does what she always does and she gives us this one like very small but also huge idea in in five lines it's i mean there are there are like clover bee a prairie like those those are the three images only three images there's this whole story in in five lines i just think it's really i don't know what it is it's it's impossible (laughs) i will be proven right it is hard to talk about emily dickinson I won't do a better job than you just did. It is compressed. So that's one reason it's impressive because Mm -hmm. of its compression. You know, it's only five lines. As you say, it's only five lines. And yet she evokes a physical landscape that is enormous. So there's maybe that's why we love it. One, one of the hundred reasons why we love it because it's a tiny poem about an enormous thing. Yeah. I mean, obvious answers like it's concrete, concrete sensory details, prairie, clover, mm-hmm. bee, but also just the brain. There's something about Emily Dickinson's brain. I was inflicting, I, I shouldn't say inflicting because my wife loves Emily Dickinson as much as me, but this doesn't happen with other poets. I'll be mm-hmm. reading at home in my living room and constantly, oh, you, you have to hear this one to my wife. You have to hear this one. Oh, here's another. Over and over again, poor lady. Um <laughs> And I think one reason is because Emily Dickinson's brain is like no other human brain. Who who asks themselves, how are prairies made? I mean, people do, I guess. But don't you think this is a startling thought to have? How are prairies made? Yes, so many odd perspectives. I, I get I get 
two or three odd perspectives a lifetime and she gets them every poem. That's <laughs> so true. That's a great I, way of I saying it. <laughs> she looks at the world as if she was a total visitor. Like yeah. the, or she looks at objects from your word perspective is the right word from perspectives, from vantage points, from points of view, physically even, like she'll look at the bottom of a thing or the, the back of a thing uh, that in a way that nobody else does. Mm-hmm. How are prairies made? All you need is one bee spreading this pollen. That's it. And suddenly you have this thing. Well, that's not it. I, maybe another reason we love it is because the turn. Well, that's not only what you need and reverie. There's a little turn on line three. <laughs> yeah. And then, the, and then, the, so there's a turn. I, th- I see like a turn and then another turn. So one clover and one bee and reverie. You know, there's not enough to have one clover and one bee. You need, you need this other bigger thing. It's like, ah, well, actually, you don't even need the clover and the bee. <laughs> Just reverie, you know? So what else could we say about why this poem is great? Sounds. It has great sounds. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's almost like it's a, a small map from a lot of her other work. Um, you know, like, I mean, it's not an Emily Dickinson's poem without a bee or a gnat or a fly or something like that. Very good. Um, and she, it's like she's, she's saying that like the, um, like you, to create something, you don't need like the things. You don't need a pen and paper to write a poem. You just need the emotion. Very good. And, and that is what, like, I think that's what she's saying is that you don't need, you don't need things to create. You just need you. Wow, this is so good. And it it will prompt me to go next in a minute to this poem that ends True Poems Flee, which I think is poem 1472. So it kind of corroborates the point you're making. But before we go there, yeah, emotion. Um, well, first of all, yeah, let me, let me back up a little bit and reiterate this point. Um, it is kind of like Emily Dickinson in Microcosm. It's not about death. This poem. So that's the only ingredient that is left out of this poem, death or fear. But yeah, we have a B, but she's also extremely good at pairing concretes to abstractions. Mm-hmm. What is reverie? It is a clover and a bee. I mean, that is reverie. Mm-hmm. She makes the perfect correspondences between physical phenomena and emotions. The most perfect ones. Yeah. And they're always the most unexpected, but they're always totally persuasive. Yeah, she so does she, a really good job of, of like she does have this kind of weirdy like perspective on on things, but she does a really good job of of showing you, of like inviting you into her brain and showing you that perspective. And so it's not weird anymore. Right. It is it is a version of Pound's make it new, right? Mm-hmm. It is totally new. She shows us things we've never seen before, but but we, or this is what Frost, I think, says somewhere in a letter. Poets or great literature tells us things we know, tells us things we didn't know we knew. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This is Dickinson. Mm-hmm. She's so good at this. So can we talk about 1472? Yeah. Um, this could, I don't know. I'm kind of tempted to just like go through as many poems as possible because they're so small. You just flit like a bee from, from clover to clover. Okay. <laughs> Uh, 1472. Tell me what you think about this, Sam. To see the summer sky is poetry, though never in a book it lie. True poems flee. What is what is there to say? What is there to say? It's good. I wouldn't know what I would. I mean, yeah. I mean, what is there to say? But we have to say something. This is a podcast. <laughs> she has she has a couple of of poems like these where she where she's talks about poetry in a way that it's that she kind of shows us that she doesn't see it as like the words on the page. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like true. There's, she has that reference to Keats, you know, truth is beauty, beauty is truth. And I think that poems like these are like just little ways of saying that of saying like, like poetry is, is not just words. Like it's not just, it's not just the ink that's printed on the page. It's, yeah something totally other that you can't you can't really pin it down you can't really hold it in your hands this is so true i think you're totally right which makes it this is like i'm a horrible teacher because i'm constantly admitting that you can't really talk about why poems are great how they get made how to make them yourself true poems flee constantly one step ahead of you 
constantly you like chase them and try to grab them but they you can't you can never pin bad poems don't flee bad poems you can talk about why they're bad you can write them quite easily you could make a recipe for a bad poem that would take five minutes but true poems a true poem is something else they're always eluding you And you, you and her both say, yeah, they're more than the ink. It's not never in a book at lie. What would you, what would you say to a person that says, no, but they are ink? I mean, these people have a point, don't they? The poem we just read is ink, and it is in a book. Yeah, but then, but then you could get into a whole discussion about, you know, what makes a poem different than prose or different than fiction or a romance novel. There's so much more to language than just what's written down. Yeah, um, and a poem. Is is supposed to be more than what's written down. It's supposed to be like, like your your deep innermost thoughts. Like, and I think I think Emily Dickinson does, like her all of her poems feel like, like they're just things that she's thinking about and things that she's thought deeply about. They're they're things that matter to her on a on a spiritual level. Um, yeah. And and if you if all words were like that, I think the world would be a much better place. <laughs> Well, like, for example, um, we have to stay on this topic because you raise such a good good point. And Dickinson, as you say, has poems that illustrate this. It will take a minute for me to find. Well, yeah, just in the interest of let's go to 761 and then let's go to poem 11, 1129. Yeah. Yeah. Poetry is is more than the sum of its parts. That's why it's art and not a microwave repair manual. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, printed text yeah. that has a, whose purpose is to teach you how to repair a microwave is not more than the sum of its parts and therefore is not art. Poetry, it's like that bee in the clover. It's like, it takes reverie, but it takes a reader. There's some kind of alchemical magic that happens between text and reader's brain. It's very hard to describe. Yeah. For example, poem 761, who knows what she's talking about. From blank to blank, a threadless way, I pushed mechanic feet. To stop or perish or advance, alike indifferent. If end I gained, it ends beyond, indefinite disclosed. I shut my eyes and groped as well. Twas lighter to be blind. Certainly won't ask you what this means because I don't know what it means. If it means, if what it means is what it says. It enacts in its very opacity, in its lack of transparency, what she's talking about, mm -hmm. this, to, to groping from blank to blank. And I think what's being celebrated here is a kind of blindness. You said that she references Keats's um, truth is beauty, 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 truth. She absolutely does in that wonderful poem, I Died for Beauty. But Keats has this other dictum about negative capability yeah. and the willingness to submit to mysteries and uncertainty. Twas lighter to be blind. It's like you just have to, poems, when you're in the presence of a great poem, you are blind to why it's great. Yeah, I think that, I think that if, if this poem were clearer if we if we could explain what each word each line each image meant it wouldn't be as as great and i think right. that's like that's the genius of it she's saying like it's better because we don't really know right because we can't really explain it even though like we can feel it that's that's exactly right that's what we love about it because we don't understand it we don't know it that's what attracts us to God, to divinity, to beauty, to art, to love. Something about a beloved, you're so mysterious to me. You know, that's not, you know, to use a magnet metaphor, that's not a repulsive force. That's an absolutely attractive force for sure. Mm -hmm. So here she says in 1129, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. So you see, it's a kind of similar poem. Mm -hmm. 
um, advocating this wonderful evasion or uncertainty or yeah i think it's a good way to corroborate what you say about perspective she's always looking at objects slantwise mm-hmm. slightly slantwise i don't know what else should we talk about any other poems where, where should we go um can we talk about 737 yeah for sure i don't know what it is but i'll be happily surprised I just think it's beautiful. <laughs> 737 it might be in my top five. I, I don't think I've decided yet. What my okay, top go, five go for it. Read it. The moon was but a chin of gold a night or two ago, and now she turns her perfect face upon the world below. Her forehead is of amplest blonde, her cheek a barrel hewn, her eye unto the summer dew, the likest I have known. Her lips of amber never part, but what must be a, the smile upon her friend she would confer were such her silver will. And what a privilege to be but the remotest star. For certainty, she take her way beside your palace door. Her bonnet is the firmament, the universe her shoe, the stars, the trinkets at her belt, her dimities of blue. What a great poem. And I'm so glad you you went to it because it, yeah, it, it exemplifies so many of the aspects that I highlighted that I wanted to talk about. So take it away. What's so beautiful about this? One of the things that I, that I joke about when, you know, I tell people I'm a poet, I say, oh yeah, it's because I'm in love with the moon. <laughs> there, are, there are so many so many poems about the moon and some of them are awful and probably most of them are, are awful. Mm. And there was that, that Herbert, I think it was Herbert, that wrote that awful poem about the moon. Do you remember it? No. It was, it was not a love poem to the moon. It was the, it was the opposite. And I felt so deeply offended by that poem that I can't, I can't forget it, and, and I wish I could. Well, wait, remind um, me. What, I, what, what is it? What does he say? I mean... Oh, no. Um, he, he says... Um, it's in Herbert's book on page 151. Um, I wrote next to this poem, Such Disrespect. <laughs> Just give us a flavor, a sentence or two. What does he say? It's, it's only like three sentences. It says, I don't understand how you can write poems about the moon. It's fat and slovenly. It picks the noses of chimneys. Favorite thing to do is climb under the bed and sniff at your shoes. <laughs> disrespect. Well, at least it subverts expectation because as you <laughs> say, Sam, very rightly, like poets can be so easily, and there's this wonderful Mark Strand poem about the moon. You know this poem, right? From Dark Harbor where he says, the first line, you can make fun of the splendors of moonlight. So he's kind of preempting how easy it is to make fun of poets for swooning about how beautiful the moon is. And we do, we're, we're too romantic in that sense. So maybe the best you could say for that Herbert poem is that he's at least trying to subvert the stereotype. Dickinson doesn't try to subvert it. She just leans right into it. Mm-hmm. Like, of course I love the moon. Have you ever looked at it? Of course I love it. So what are the best bits of this, would you say? The, uh, the moon was but a chin of gold. A chin, like a chin of gold, that's so good. Um, a chin, well, why is that so good? You know, You know, people always say like the moon looks like like a smile or like a like yeah. a fingernail yeah. when it's when it's thin like that, and I think that's that's what I'm picturing is like not quite as thin as like a fingernail or and not not quite as thin as like the Cheshire Cat smile, but just like a little bit more. Yeah. Like nobody talks about the moon. Like we talk about the moon when it's full or when it's just barely there. Right. But she's like like it's halfway there. It's like a chin. I think that's so good. And it is yeah. It's a body part that we've never heard used to, to metaphorize the moon before. Mm-hmm. And then it's this whole kind of like blazon of her forehead, her cheek, barrel, barrel hewn. This is an attribute of hers that I wanted to highlight. She's so good. Dickinson is so good at diction or sonic texture or word choice. Barrel. It's as if Dickinson has, and this is, I would put this in the bin of what we can learn from her. Even if you are not writing in her style, what can you learn from her? Well, you can learn from her that certain words are so beautiful that they instantly will make your poem beautiful. Words mm-hmm. like barrel, or in other, in other poems like cochineal, mazarin, diadem, vermilion, mm-hmm. this bird that comes up in poem after poem of hers, bobo link, you know, mm-hmm. all these wonderful, it's as if Dickinson has memorized the name of every gemstone, every mineral, every bird, every spice, every fabric, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and she just knows that certain words, to, if, if you stud your poems with certain words like this, how could a reader not be extremely delighted? Mm. Her lips of amber never part, you know? So it's just so beautiful. Also, this does a, this is a good thing, a good poem to 
highlight how great Dickinson is at combining the big and the small, which again is something that I say we can all learn from her, no matter what our style. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are universals in poetry. I don't think that all great poems always do X or Y. Poetry is too diverse mm-hmm. there to be a universal. But certainly 95% of great poems pair the big with the small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Her bonnet is the firmament, Her the universe, her shoe, right? So there's this macros. Dickinson has this telescopic eye mm-hmm. and can zoom in and out, in and out, in and out in the space of a stanza. The stars are just trinkets at her belt, you know? And here's another great word, dimities. Put that under the under the bin of d- diadem and <sighs> mazarin and all this wonderful stuff. Dimities of blue. Look, this, I said, what did I say at the beginning of our conversation? She can teach us about diction, color, oxymoron, combining big and small, combining dark and light. I think this poem might do all of it. Dimities mm-hmm. of blue is color. This wonderful bit about silver, her silver will. It's like her her poems are like Rothko paintings or something. So often, yeah. it's like here's more color. Mm-hmm. You know what? You know what else is beautiful? Color. So here's more color. <laughs> you know, so good at that. Does this poem have an oxymoron or a surprising adjective noun pair? I'm looking. I'm not sure. By the, this, by this, I just mean like twas sweeter to be blind. She'll she'll say stuff like this all mm-hmm. the time or. I have this marked down in my notes, poem 1224. Can we go to poem 1224 as an example of oxymoron? Oh, here's another B, poem 1224. I'll quickly just read it. It's quite short. Like trains of cars on tracks of plush. There's more fabric. Yeah, she's in love with fabric. Like trains of cars on tracks of plush, I hear the level B. A jar across the flowers goes. Their velvet masonry withstands until the sweet assault their chivalry consumes, while he victorious tilts away to vanquish other blooms. So adjective noun pairs like velvet masonry, which is an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. Stones in Emily Dickinson's world are soft as velvet. Another one is sweet assault. Assault in Emily Dickinson's world is sweet. Everything is also its opposite in these poems. I think she's so good at that. What else? Where else should we go? What poem? Nominate another one. Um, so while you're looking, let me just say to everyone listening, like, it's like, oh, okay, she's good at oxymoron, but what, what can I do? Just steal stuff like this. Like velvet masonry is a phrase you could, you might want to credit her. It's quite unique and quite distinct. You know what I mean? It absolutely could belong in a 21st century free verse prose poem velvet masonry or sweet assault, you know, so you can just read through this list and mine an absolute treasure trove of language with which to build your own poems. Okay. Where are we going, Sam? Let's look at 670. 670. It's on page 333. Very good. What a great poem. Okay. Do you want to read it? Sure. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain house corridors surpassing material place. Far safer of a midnight meeting external ghost than its interior confronting that cooler host. Far safer through an abbey gallop, the stones a chase, than than unarmed one's a self-encounter in lonesome place. Ourself behind ourself concealed should startle most. Assassin hid in our apartment to be horrors least. The body borrows a revolver, he bolts the door, overlooking the superior specter or more. Okay, enthuse, please. I just love, I mean, it's, it's always like her opening lines of these longer ones that get me, wouldn't it not be a chamber to be haunted? Like, like we we haunt ourselves enough more than more than any haunted house could could be haunted, I think. Yeah. Um, ourself behind ourself concealed. I mean, there's a lot here that I don't understand, but but that I think that's part of what makes it so good is like, like this poem is haunting yeah. me. It's a great, okay, you said something so good. It's always the first lines. She's so good at first lines. She's probably the best poet of first lines ever to have ever lived. I think that that's probably true. Mm -hmm. So she can teach us, this wasn't on my list, but it should have been. She can teach us how to get a reader to keep reading. Yeah, yeah. 
one need not be a chamber to be haunted, or I felt a funeral in my brain, or to make a prairie, it takes a clover and one bee. You think, who is this person? Where are they getting? Or um, another example or two. One poem I want to get to in its entirety later starts with this phrase, of course I prayed. <laughs> of course I prayed, which I just love. Is that the one where she says, but did God hear? Yeah, but yeah, what good did that do? So good. Yeah, we'll actually get to that poem, uh, but not yet. Um, other first great lines, even like almost semi-randomly, like looking at first lines here, I reason earth is short. You think, oh, this is a good poem. He Or he fumbles at your soul. Like, who is this person fumbling at my soul? Yeah, this poem is haunting. And it is quintessential Dickinson in the sense, as you say, that she is the poet of interior. She is the poet of the interior. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, she just is. She spent so much. I mean, I, I don't want to speculate on her biography, but she spent so much time introspecting that she charted that terrain more than anyone else. She knows what the inside of the mind is. This might be one reason why brain, the word brain keeps coming up in her poems. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. So the fold, it's like almost anatomical. The folds of the brain become corridors, become labyrinthine corridors that have more area, more space than space. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in all of the cosmos, that's not as much space as has been folded into the human brain. This is so great. <laughs> Our self behind our self conceal should startle most. So you, it's not like the zombie Halloween is approaching. So it's good that you chose this poem. <laughs> it's not zombies behind the bushes, but it's you hiding behind yourself. That's mm -hmm. the scariest thing, you know, it's that wonderful thing. She preempted what are these horrible horror movies, you know, scream. The call is coming from inside the house. You know, that horror trope. She preempted this 150 years ago. You run away from this person and you bolt the door, but the but haunted you... thing. Yeah. The, this is where the ghost is. I'm No one can see this. I'm pointing at your brain. You can never run away from yourself. So good. Well, let's go to, of course, I pray. Should we talk about faith in these poems? Yeah. Yeah. The reason that they're so captivating is she has such a honest, right? We could say honesty. She could teach us how to be honest yeah. in a poem. Let's add this to our list. I'm going to put... First lines and honesty, right? This is page, This is poem 376. Let's read this poem 376 and, oh dear, will I be able to find that lightning poem with a forked, Sam, do you know oh, where that I is? I know which one that one is. Oh, which number is that? Oh, it's uh, 1173. Let's go there after. So these are our next two. So 1173, because these are great faith poems. How could let's just ask this as a question? How could a poet writing about faith write about faith badly? What could go wrong? This is a question. What could go wrong in a poem about faith? Maybe this is insensitive, but I think one of the easiest ways to mess up a poem about God is to be boring. Yeah. To, to believe in uninteresting things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not not to say that you know religion or spirituality is is a bad or uninteresting thing, but I think that it can be so easily cliched. Yeah. Because it's such a common aspect of our lives. There are too many things we've already been told about God. Mm -hmm. This isn't to say anything about their truth value. These could be true and important things that we've been told about God. Mm -hmm. You know, they've just been said too often to feel surprising. Mm -hmm. And poetry is not religious instruction and is under different obligations. It must surprise it always, always, always must surprise. And Dickinson knows this. She never writes about faith in a way that's not surprising. She writes about doubt. She has a lot of doubt. So how could you write about doubt in a way that's bad? Some people listening might say, oh, all I have to do to write about faith well is be provocative and like slam God and be edgy, you know, but this could also go wrong, couldn't it? Yeah, I think I think trying to be edgy in a poem always goes wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, why? I mean, you're right. Um, you, yeah, we said we said that Emily Dickinson is honest. Yeah. That she's she's honest about her her beliefs, her ideas. And I think that when you try to be different or to be to be edgy, you're I think it there's there's a layer of of dishonesty there and For and sure. it comes through. This is so wise. This is so great. 
your priority in moments like that isn't honesty anymore, but attention getting. Mm-hmm. And Dickinson gets our attention without that priority eclipsing the priority of honesty. Yeah. I mean, she wants our attention, but she wants to be honest more. Mm-hmm. So she'll say, she'll, so this will result in a very conflicted poem. She wants to believe, and sometimes she does believe, but she sometimes can't believe. Mm-hmm. So honesty will will result in nuance, and nuance is always interesting. Let's look at this poem, 376. <laughs> My wife and I were swooning over this poem for like a half hour the other day. <laughs> of course I prayed. <laughs> Oh my gosh, this is so good. Oh, think of all those church meetings you've you've been in where the advice is like, just pray, you know. God will hear your prayer. Thank goodness for the Emily Dickinsons of the world. Stand up. <laughs> of course I prayed. I did that already. Duh, I did it. What else do you have for me? Of course I prayed, you idiots. And did God care? He cared as much as on the air a bird had stamped her foot and cried, give me. Which is the best thing ever. Why is that so good? Because who thinks of that? Who thinks of a bird stamping the air? That's exactly right. We think of birds as like these graceful, pleasant, always happy. Here we have this like petulant, stubborn, demanding bird Mm -hmm. stamping the air. And And did God care? He cared as much as on the air a bird had stamped her foot and cried, give me. Also, that demand is so great, isn't it? Give me, you know. My reason, life, yourself is God. My reason, life, I had not had, but for yourself. T'were better charity to leave me in the Adam's tomb. Mary and not, N-O-U-G-H-T, Mary and nothing. Mary and not, and gay, and numb, than this smart misery. T'were better charity to leave me in the Adam's tomb, merry and not, and gay and numb, than this smart misery. I don't know what to say. It's honest. Those adjectives are so great. She's so good at words. (laughs) What a surprise. Dickinson, good at words. In the pre- embryonic before i was formed into a person i was this in this adam's tomb you know atomized i was just atoms you know it's a kind of tomb there's the play on words with adam oh my gosh this is so great (laughs) that had never occurred to me so it's a-t-o-m yeah so i was in this pre-atomized state i was just particles floating in space which was a tomb because i wasn't born yet so it's a kind of death but yeah adams in adam's tomb like Adam should never have, you know, procreated. It would have been better there. I would have been merry and not and gay and numb, right? So these contrasting elements, I would have been happy, but nothing. That would have been better than this smart misery. There's another great oxymoron, smart misery. She's honest enough to say that misery is smart and intelligence can be miserable, you know? And she wants to pray. She wants God. But, you know, he doesn't answer sometimes. He doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to answer sometimes. Wow. What a great poem. Okay, what were we going to do now? The lightning poem, right? Yes. Which was 11 what? 73. Do you want to read this or should I? I'll read it. Yeah, go for it. The lightning is a yellow fork from from tables in the sky. By inadvertent fingers dropped the awful cutlery of mansions never quite disclosed and never quite concealed, the apparatus of the dark to ignorance revealed. And and yeah, let, I mean, we might be repeating, but repetition is the mother of learning, right? So let's highlight all of these areas. So far, we've talked about, so what I'm going to ask you to do, Sam, is to walk us through how this poem does what we've already talked about. We've talked about the following, sonic texture. So surprising diction, right? Surprising word choices. Color, oxymoron, combining the big and the small, combining darkness and light. And we mean that metaphorically, but also literally happiness and joy, terror and beauty, fear and comfort. We've talked about first lines. We've talked about honesty. How does this poem, does this poem do all of that? It doesn't have to do all of it, but it does a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first line, the lightning is yellow fork is, I think is enough to get us going like 
to get us interested. And and she continues that that metaphor, which our inadvertent fingers dropped the awful cutlery. There's there's something about that that is like it it sounds good when you read it, but it also sounds good when you picture it. Yeah. It's the like I, I mean I picture thunder when I read this. Yeah. Um, yeah. You you hear the dropping and it, it's, mm-hmm. maybe it's in the word awful. The awful cutlery. Because it's like you that awful that word awful raises the stakes it's not just dropped but it's something grand is happening mm-hmm. here something ominous and bad so that's where the thunder comes in you know mm-hmm. hear all this grand cosmic rumbling uh what else we have yellow i mean there's a color no I mean not to get too checkboxy here um <laughs> awful cutlery we could maybe say is a kind of oxymoron not really but Surprise! It's a very surprising adjective noun pairing. Yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't normally think that. I mean, I have awful coloring because it's all mismatched. But like most, I imagine most people's silverware matches. Yeah, and you would never think that cutlery deserves the adjective awful. You know, it doesn't really. Mm-hmm. It's, it's such a minor thing; it doesn't warrant that kind of criticism. Inadvertent. How great is this word to describe <laughs> God's fingers? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like. God isn't absent. That's the thing about Dickinson. Dickinson's God. He's almost more infuriating than atheist, than, than like an atheist poet's mm-hmm. uh, criticisms of a Christian worldview. God is around in Dickinson's poems, but does things inadvertently, you know, without paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then, and then of mansions never quite disclosed and never quite concealed. Like he's, not quite giving us the answers, but he's not hiding them either. Yeah, it's, it's the apathy that's the most infuriating thing. He's giving us mm-hmm. enough to like keep our faith alive, but hiding himself enough to make us frustrated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and and of course I prayed, but did God care? Like, does he does he care that our lives are just happening by accident? Right. You know, this is so honest. I mean. Any honest person of faith at BYU or anywhere else will admit this, that faith involves a lot of, faith is only faith. I don't, I, suddenly I heard Sunday school, yeah? Don't mean to get too Sunday schooly, but faith is only faith in the presence of its opposite, doubt. And this is a kind of a truism, and therefore it's true. And Dickinson is so honest about that doubt, and therefore her faith, the moments when God is around or beauty is real, seem earned or justified or persuasive mm-hmm. or real they're on a firmer foundation yeah. they're more trustworthy yeah. the apparatus of the dark <laughs> this is so good i'm certain that robert frost must have been reading this right when he wrote that wonderful poem design that ends uh what but design of darkness to appall if design mm-hmm. govern in a thing so small it comes right out of dickinson yeah the apparatus of the dark so divinity or the structure of the cosmos creation is an apparatus. There is a design, but it's like a design of darkness somehow. So wonderful. Okay, where else should we go? We have a few more minutes. Okay, I think I had 291. 291? Yeah. 291. Oh, wow, what a great poem. Yeah, go for it. Read it. Let's like do rapid fire. We'll read 291. We'll read 335. We'll read maybe one other rapid fire rounds. Okay. How the old mountains drip with sunset, how the hemlocks burn, how the dunbrake is draped in cinder by the wizard sun, how the old steeples hand the scarlet till the ball is full, have I the lip of the flamingo that I dare to tell. Then how the fire ebbs like billows, touching all the grass with the departing sapphire feature as the duchess passed. How a small dusk crawls on the village till the houses blot, and the odd flambeau no man carry, glimmer on the street. How it is night in nest and kennel, and where was the wood, just a dome of abyss, is bowing into solitude. These are the visions, flitted Guido, Titian, Titian, never told, Mm -hmm. Domenichino dropped his pencil, paralyzed with gold. So beautiful. (laughs) What are your favorite bits? I mean, again, the first line, how the old mountains drip with sunset. The line, the dunbreak is draped in cinder, just sounds so, Mm. so good. Have I the lip of the flamingo that I dare to tell? <laughs> um, that's that third stanza is just, and then and then dusk crawling like such a good image, a dome Wonderful. of abyss, <laughs> and uh, paralyzed with gold, right? Paralyzed with gold, yeah. 
And that's that's what that's what great art does. It paralyzes us with its beauty. This is a great poem. I'm so glad you took us here. Listen to you've read Charles Wright, I know, because he was assigned in a, in a former class. He, I would say, in a lot of ways, is very un-Dickinson-esque. In a lot of ways, is, but stylistically, he's not writing in this hymnal ballad meter. You know, Dickinson mm-hmm. clearly has the like the hymnal stanza in mind. All of these A B A B or A B X B. Mm-hmm. tetrameter you can almost hear the organ music behind these yeah. you know what i mean they're the hymn lyrics mm-hmm. that's the, the the kind of form that she's working in but they're like the most dazzling and subversive and beautiful hymn lyrics ever charles wright is not writing in a form remotely close to that but mm-hmm. how the old mountain drips with sunset that is a charles wright line mm-hmm. isn't it there's Definitely, nothing that yeah. prevents that line from being uttered by a poet in the 21st century. Nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that prevents a poet in the 21st century from writing the following phrase, how the dun break is draped in cinder. I'm just like hammering this home because I just want people listening to know that, yeah, Dickinson is old and her style is so idiosyncratic, but that doesn't mean we can't learn from her or take from her mm-hmm. or steal from her or model certain lines or sentences or images off of her. We absolutely can. Um, and even like the Guido and the other things I don't know how to pronounce, Domen- Domenicino, that also come like Charles Wright would absolutely drop references like this, wouldn't he? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful poem 335 on page 158. Um, why did I want to read this poem? She has a wonderful, she she has many poems that live in this kind of liminal space between life and death. Mm-hmm. She's a voyager into the human psyche, as we talked about, but she's also a voyager into the other, the afterlife, if there is one, you know, as mm-hmm. she would say, if there is one. Am I alive? Am I dead? Keats, maybe. It's interesting that you said Keats because the very beginning of this conversation, because in this letter, I've shared this letter with you before, and I did another podcast for the 218 class on Dickinson. And I read Mm -hmm. the letter for this podcast for that one. Um, I'll email it to the 669 class. But in this letter, she tells Higginson, her correspondent, what books do I have? Well, for poetry, I have Keats and Mr. and Mrs. Browning. And she might say the Psalms. I can't remember. But Keats is on her shelf. And she names him as a poet that she is reading and knows and is influenced by. And now I'm thinking of that line at the end of Ode to a Nightingale, and do I wake or sleep? Do I wake or sleep? Which is the Dickinson phrase, do I wake or mm-hmm. sleep, right? The truth must dazzle by degrees or uh, that wonderful poem. I'm now like lost in my own thoughts. Sorry, Sam. <laughs> um, that disc of snow, right? This mm, is the hour yeah. of lead. Remember this poem? Yeah. And then eventually you slowly die. We won't go there. Anyway, she's this wonderful she's a wonderful poet of um fading from one state of being to another state of being. I'll just read 335. Tis not that dying hurts us so. Tis living hurts us more. But dying is a different way, a kind behind the door. The southern custom of the bird that ere the frosts are due accepts a better latitude. We are the birds that stay. The shiverers round farmers' doors, for whose reluctant crumb we stipulate, till pitying snows persuade our feathers home. This is so beautiful. It's like there are people who have died, like birds migrating to a different place, and they are the smart ones or the better ones or the lucky ones. They're in Mexico, you know, that's where the Mm -hmm. geese go. They're Mm -hmm. sprawled out on the beaches of Mexico. We are the birds that stay. We are the shiverers. It's not so good. Just as a word, the shiverers. Everyone who, will, who is alive, you are a shiverer. What are you doing here? You're waiting around a farmer's door for crumbs. And what is death? It's finally getting sick of the cold, sick enough of the cold to leave. It's like strangest combination of morbidity and beauty. Yeah. So good. Um. What else, what else haven't we talked about? We've talked about influence, right? I mean, we haven't, maybe we don't need to, but we haven't really talked about her dashes. <laughs> maybe we need to. I mean, I ignore them and maybe I shouldn't. What do you think about them? 
What do you, what do you want to, what do you think needs to be said about them? That's maybe the better question. I, I usually like read past them, but this time around I was looking for, for ways that they, they influence the reading of the poem or the way that I, yeah, the way I read the poem. That one that we just read, I think that the kind of, I mean, sometimes the dashes function as like an ellipsis where, where a verb or a, a phrase is omitted in like a parallel structure. Um, yeah. But here, especially, we are the birds that stay. Like, those add, like, like, they tell you, like, where to emphasize and how to read yeah. that line. Yeah. Instead of instead of a line break, it's a dash, or instead of a comma, because, you know, a comma wouldn't wouldn't make sense there. Yeah, in some lines, in some poems, they add, they add like, a kind of rhythm where they slow down the line. Yeah. In, yeah. in poem 315, the He Fumbles at Your Soul poem, there are, there are almost no dashes until... Um, the nearer than so slow mm. your breath has time to strain. And after that, there's so many dashes. And I think it, it adds like a, this this layer of pacing to the poem. Um, mm. I mean, there are a couple other other things, but I, I don't think that they're that they're random or that they're just just there because, you know, she couldn't type them and, and show us where to, to emphasize things. But you don't think they're random, but how strategic this surely this this would exist on a spectrum, too. It's not a matter of on or off, random or strategic. There must be degrees of randomness yeah. and degrees of strategy. So could it, I don't want this to sound like a leading question. I don't know how else to phrase it. Could it not be possible that sometimes indeed they are extremely strategic and can make all the difference and at other times they are merely the product of a habitual, they're habitual. They're the yeah. residue, they're, they're accidental, you know. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Or random. Yeah, I definitely think that that especially I mean, we don't need to get too much into like her her biography, but but, you know, she lived in the 1800s. She most of these were not were never typed. They were never published Indeed. in her lifetime, you know, and, and a lot of her poems. It's very clear that that she was writing mostly for herself. Yeah. Um, many of her poems just feel like like expressions of her own thoughts and her own ideas that that maybe she maybe she never intended anybody to know about you know so I think in that sense like something like her dashes could could just be things that she that she put there and then didn't think that she needed to to edit out because who was going to read it anyway I mean I yeah I don't know what to say exactly people have talked about how some of these dashes function as commas some as periods some as exclamation marks Mm -hmm. Another problem is that if you look at the manuscripts, the dashes, there are different length dashes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're long and sometimes they're short. So you have people now saying, well, we should print versions of her poems that replicate the exact length of these dashes. And I just think, well, but no. Well, was she right? that intentional about them? Yeah. yeah. Like how long, how intentional is Dickinson about the hooks of her R's? Are we now going to like mimic? Yeah like the exact length of the Y as it goes, you know what I mean? Or mm-hmm. how big is the tail on her cue? I mean, this is, it gets to be, I think a little bit irrelevant. Yeah. I think since it exists on the spectrum, you could never say in this poem, it's relevant. And in this poem, it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Never, I mean, it could change line to line. Yeah. I say I ignore them and I don't take that back, but I should probably qualify it. They have an effect that on me that is probably diffusive and atmospheric as opposed to concrete and I don't have a set number of seconds that I give to every dash when I'm reading an Emily Dickens mm-hmm. poem. I don't translate these into, oh, this is 1.5 seconds yeah. I have to wait or, oh, this is a comma. I'm, I'm not translating them into commas. Mm-hmm. I read them and I think, oh, this is the product. This is yet one of a dozen products of a very fantastic mind. Mm-hmm doing what it wants to do. So I try not to read too much into them. That I guess that's maybe a better way of saying I, I ignore them. I do ignore them, but I try not to, I should have said, I try not to read too much into them because yeah. that way madness lies. How much could you read into them? <laughs> well, and there's just so much there in the words themselves. Like there's too much there to to constantly be wondering, oh, what does this dash mean? Yeah. This is this is probably the best thing that could ever be said about the dashes, I think. I mean, th- they get too much attention, don't they? People, fans of her poetry, scholars of her poetry, maybe not, maybe I'm being unfair, too, because the dash is so strange and so unique to her, mm-hmm. they get too much attention. Yeah. Uh, 
And I just want to say, hello, look at the words. <laughs> yeah. They're 10 times better than any dash could ever be. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I work at the writing center and since everything's online, we have like this big group chat where we were talking if we're, if we're working or, or whatever. Um, and we've gotten in the habit of well, those of us who work later in the shifts and um, we close at, at nine, some nights to, to sharing poems. Oh, cool. Um, and somebody shared an Emily Dickinson oh. poem. And after they shared it, they said something like, too many dashes, Emily. And I was like, did you, did you read the poem though? Yeah. <laughs> Forget the dashes. The poem was, am- I don't even remember which poem it was anymore. <laughs> I know. But, that's exactly right. Forget yeah. the dashes. I mean, they do have an effect, but like I say, it is kind of atmospheric or diffusive and you can just let them be, yeah, read the poem. <laughs> Look at the words. The words are insane. Yeah. In the, in the best possible way. That's a great point. I mean, that thought had never actually occurred to me. So I'm glad that you said it. Yeah. Forget the dashes because look at the words. Let's read this. This is a great poem maybe to end our discussion on because it's Emily Dickinson swooning over books. Um, And it kind of captures exactly what she gives to us, you know, pausing. Why am I pausing? I'm pausing because, you know, there are, I've said this before, but I really mean it. It's worth emphasizing what makes life worth living. Loved ones, yes. Meaningful labor, yeah. Beautiful things. That might be number three on my list, beautiful things. If you take any of those three off of the list, life gets dramatically, dramatically less worth living. Mm -hmm. If you eradicate any of those three from existence. So Dickinson devoted an entire life to making my life more worth living. I would be immensely sadder immensely sadder if this book didn't exist and it almost didn't you know i mean these mm-hmm. these these yeah. poems were not hidden really but ignored tucked away so this book more than most books we can feel immensely lucky to have i want to get somber for a minute and just say that we should feel immensely we should feel more lucky to have this book than most other books and mm-hmm. we are under an even greater obligation to not take this book for granted. And this is a poem 371, poem 371 that she just celebrates how wonderful books are. So let's just end with it. A precious moldering pleasure tis to meet an antique book in just the dress his century wore. A privilege, I think, his venerable hand to take and warming in our own a passage back or two to make to times when he was young his quaint opinions to inspect, his thought to ascertain on themes concern our mutual mind, the literature of man. What interested scholars most, what competitions ran when Plato was a certainty and Sophocles a man, when Sappho was a living girl and Beatrice wore the gown that Dante deified. Facts centuries before he traverses familiar as one should come to town and tell you all your dreams were true. He lived where dreams were born. This he, sorry to interrupt, must be the book, right? He lived where dreams were born. His presence is enchantment. You beg him not to go. Old volumes shake their vellum heads and tantalize just so. This book's presence is enchantment. Yeah, mm-hmm. you do beg it not to go. Here we are at the end of this this recording. Not going to be talking about Dickinson. Well, we will in the live Zoom chat. So we don't quite have to beg this book not to go yet. But I'm sure at the end of that chat, we'll, we'll think, are we really done? Do we really have to be done with Dickinson? Good news is no. Keep reading her for the rest of your life. Last words, Sam, what do you think? I really like what you said about, just before you read this, about books being our enchantment. Do you beg them not to go? Um, and I think with, I mean, with Dickinson, we don't have to beg her not to go because because you read her and she just like seeps into your soul. And I I mean, I don't know how many times I've read Dickinson. I don't even know when I first started reading Dickinson, like her her poems and her words are just so deeply ingrained into like who I am as not even just as a poet, but as like a person. Yeah. Um, and I think that I think that if if we didn't have Dickinson, I I might not be here right now what, what doing what I'm doing. I might not 
I might not, I might not have ever written a decent poem, you know? I think there, there are so many of her, of her words or her phrases or her images that just, that just stay with me and, and find their ways in small, sometimes unnoticed ways into my, into my own beliefs and into my own poems. But yeah, I think it, it's definitely, I mean, to put it in one perhaps insufficient word, it's definitely enchanting. There are all these famous Dickinson poems, none of which I'm happy to say we talked about because they're already famous. And there are other ones that need the, the microphone, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me and stuff like this. I heard a fly buzz when I died, stuff like this. I felt the funeral in my brain. Or there's that the ending. People are surprised always when they read this poem that it's Dickinson and not, I don't know, Shakespeare. They think it's Shakespeare. Uh, Parting is all we need of heaven and all we know of hell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are certain phrases for sure that have entered the collective unconscious, right? Yeah. Dickinson has managed what only a few poets get to manage, saying phrases that last outside of poetry. Mm-hmm. People know these phrases without having to have to, to study poetry. So you're right. She's seeped into our society's marrow. And I also want to say, yeah, we don't ever have to be done with her because one of the implications of your point, Sam, is we should all spend more time memorizing her poems, I think, more than, say, Whitman. I mean, Whitman is a great poet, too, but not as memorizable. And maybe there's a maybe there's less reason to memorize Whitman because the poems have a different vibe, kind of literally. They're on a different vibra- vibration. They're on a different mm-hmm. wavelength. These Dickinson poems are short, aphoristic concise, compact songs, literally hymnal stanzas. Mm-hmm. We have no excuse. We have no excuse to not memorize many of them yeah. and to assimilate their magic into our bodies, literally into the, into the folds of our brain, as she would say, into the corridors of our brain. That's, mm-hmm. that's our obligation to get them into our brain. So I need to do a better job at this. I know you are an excellent memorizer. To brag on your I behalf am. for a minute, everybody listening, <laughs> She came into my office last semester with all of Ulysses by Tennyson uh, memorized, inspired me to do the same. I, she recited it to me. I thought, why don't I have that memorized? I need to. Kind of put me to shame. So I did. It took me, like I would work on this for like five minutes, five or 10 minutes every morning, line by line, getting Ulysses into my brain. It took me two months to memorize that poem. It took a long time. Yeah, it's a long poem. <laughs> it is a long poem. That's true. But uh, but that's my point. Like Dickinson poems, we have no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> All of us, everybody listening is, is in some way interested in poetry or they got here by accident, you know, <laughs> and now hopefully they are interested in poetry. We hooked them. Everybody listening is, is interested in poetry and has no excuse to not have 20 Dickinson poems by heart. Mm-hmm. We just don't have any excuses. They're short. They're musical. They rhyme. They're immediate, they're concise, they're aphoristic, they're immediately captivating. That's our unofficial homework, uh, to go memorize 20 of our favorite Dickinson poems. And I'm sorry, I now I've grabbed the mic and I'm not letting go, but this is this is just because what you said is so good. So it's your fault, it's not mine. <laughs> um, she is so enchanting of a poet that, that, yeah, this is one way that we can learn from her. If, she, if we get her into our bloodstream, she will seep out in ways that we can't foresee. You know, it's, it's one thing for you and me to say like, oh, we can learn about contrasting big and small or oxymoron, or we can learn about being honest. But it's one thing to do that with a rational mind. But the best way to do it is to memorize her. And mm-hmm. you will see, this is a guarantee, right? Money back guarantee. <laughs> uh, you will see her changing your poetry for the better in all kinds of unpredictable and unanticipated ways, I promise. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Sam, for all of these insights. I had a great time. Thank you. Bye. Yeah. Now it's time for the writing prompt. This time I want you to take a draft of a poem you've already written, put it in front of you, and look hard at every word. As I said in the uh, earlier part of this recording when I was reading the quote of the day, that poem by Emily Dickinson, poetry might look like it has, quote, narrow hands, but it really can contain paradise. So this prompt is designed to help you focus on compression. Get that draft in front of you. Look at every word. Pretend that every word costs 
$10, meaning that for each word you cut out of that draft, you can save yourself $10. $10 goes right back into your bank account. And with this in mind, start cutting, keeping only the words that you actually need. Dickinson proves many things, but one of them certainly is that you can say everything in the tiniest poem. You can, in just a few words, suggest infinite possibility. So keep only the words that you need. Be willing to spend the money, quote-unquote money, on poems that you do, in fact, need to achieve certain effects, but everything else, be ruthless. Be totally ruthless with these cuts. I think nine times out of ten, doing this always improves my drafts, and I have no doubt that it will have the same effect on yours. Today's poem of the day is by the poet Linda Gregg. In the last Dickinson podcast, I read a poem by Kay Ryan that had, I think, extremely clear signals of Emily Dickinson influence. Linda Gregg is one of my favorite American poets, and the evidence for Dickinson's influence on her work isn't as clear, but I, I still think it's quite noticeable. I'll read this poem by her, and I think that you'll see she must have Dickinson more or less constantly in mind. This poem is called, We Manage Most When We Manage Small. So even think of that title. Seems to come right out of a Dickinson poem or letter. We Manage Most When We Manage Small. By Linda Gregg. What things are steadfast? Not the birds. Not the bride and groom who hurry in their brevity to reach one another. The stars do not blow away as we do. The heavenly things ignite and freeze. But not as my hair falls before you. Fragile and momentary, we continue. Fearing madness in all things huge and their requiring. Managing as thin light on water. Managing only greetings and farewells. We love a little as the mice huddle, as the goat leans against my hand, as the lovers quickening, riding time, making safety in the moment, this touching home goes far, this fishing in the air. That's it for today. The next recording will be a discussion between me and Danny about the poetry of John Keats. So in the meantime, keep writing, keep reading, keep being ruthless with your cuts, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Mm -hmm.